With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. From the center of the hockey universe, this is the Off the Post podcast. Welcome to another episode of Off the Post. I am your host, John Mattis of Post Media. And on the line today from probably a snowbank in, in Halifax somewhere, Micah Blake McCurdy. How's it going, Micah? I'm well, thanks, John. How are you doing? Good. Are, are you currently under a roof? Uh, I am under a roof, and we did get a pile of snow, but Halifax being Halifax, we also got a pile of rain, and it's already gone. <laughs> That's amazing. Awesome. And you are you are a mathematician. You're the owner-operator of HockeyViz.com, a uh, prominent member of Hockey Twitter. Uh, I use your site regularly. And you're known as sort of the graphs guy or the visualization guy on hockey Twitter. Well, that's I can't. Uh, I'm bad with numbers, which is a joke for a quote unquote numbers guy. And so, uh, so I like to put everything in pictures. Yeah, well, uh, I think we we appreciate that, especially at this time of year. And and that's sort of a good segue into why I wanted to have you on is the playoff races and people maybe getting uh, unrealistic about their team, whether it's, you know, they think they're not going to make the playoffs when really they have a chance or the other way around. And I feel like a guy like you and, and other people within the stats community have opened a lot of people's eyes to the fact that, you know, there's a way to sort of quantify what might happen. And there's a percentage you can throw on most teams in most situations. And at least you have sort of a, um, a bar that, that you can look at and go, the chances of this team actually getting in are pretty slim or vice versa are pretty high. You know, a lot of things have to happen for it to go the other way. And we're at the point in the season where we're past 80% of the games, uh, that, 80% of the games have been played. Uh, every team has, you know, 12, 13, 14 games left. And the playoff races are really heating up. Uh, uh, case in point, so we're recording this Wednesday night, and on Tuesday night the Leafs lose to Florida 7-2. to And according to your model on HockeyViz.com, I believe they were going into the game 53% chance of making the playoffs, and then they slid all the way down to 38%. Uh, it's pretty crazy how it fluctuates so much, but that's what happens when we're this late into the season. Well, that's that's exactly right. And the the Leafs, of course, last night, I mean, they lost and they lost bad, and that was rough for them. But also Tampa won and the Islanders won. And and so that was the perfect storm of results for them, for for dropping the Leafs like like that happened. And so you get, it's, it's interesting, of course, too, from a statistical point of view, this is exactly the time of year when you start to really see interesting stuff. Any earlier than this, you know, in any given loss or any given win, you think, okay, there's still time. And you see that mathematically, that there is still time to, you know, to lose what looks like a secure spot or to claw yourself back into a race. But it's also early enough that, uh, it's also early enough that, you know, that if you make if you make a move right now, you can actually change yourself. Whereas if you go on a three-game winning streak at the end of the year, you know it still won't be enough to really move the needle. 
Yeah, that's the thing, right? I mean, there's only one team actually eliminated from playoff contention right now. It's a lowly Colorado Avalanche, but there's a handful to 10 teams that are basically eliminated. You know, they'd have to go on some insane run, and then the teams ahead of them would have to completely plummet. So I guess let's start with your your model. Uh, on HockeyViz.com, you have every day you post a new graph, and it shows every team's playoff chances. Do you mind going through the criteria, the formula of how you come up with those numbers? Sure. Well, the most important thing, uh, and this is a little bit surprising to some people, is the schedule, where I take a simulation approach, where I look at all the games that are going to happen and uh, and simulate, you know, so I flip a coin, only instead of being 50-50, it's weighted according to how good the two teams are. And when it comes to estimating the quality of the teams, instead of using their win-loss record, which we've seen in the past is not a great predictor, I try to look at how they perform on the ice and especially how the individual players that are likely to dress have performed on the ice. So if a guy gets hurt or if there's a trade, you know, so we're past the trade deadline now, but of course there was a fair bit of movement there. That can change the, the effects of the rosters. So I put those things in a model, the team strengths, the measured in a handful of different ways that don't need to get into that. The schedules and also, and as part of the scheduling, also the rest that, that teams have. This, this year is compressed, so there's a a lot more sludge games, as I like to call them, where neither team is rested. Um, but also, so that's that's bad for everybody, but it's not equally bad for every team. So when you when you take that into account, you see that some teams have an unusually rough schedule. Like Buffalo, for instance, they're not in a great spot in standings-wise, but even their faint hope is much smaller than it might be because their schedule is brutal. They're constantly tired. And not just that, but playing against other teams that are not tired. So when you when you look at it that way, it shakes down in the East at least into into three sort of broad categories. You've got the teams that are almost safe, you know, really high percentages, 95, 96, kind of or higher. So that's Ottawa, Montreal, the Rangers, Columbus, Washington, and Pittsburgh. Those are teams which are almost certain to to keep their place. And then you've got the teams that are that are really on small chances. And part of what makes this year really interesting compared to last year is because there are no teams already eliminated, the days of Buffalo being horrific in the East are over. And, and really, you know, there's plenty of teams that aren't doing so, so hot in there, but it, they're not going to, the reason that they're not going to make the playoffs is not because there's so many points out, because they're all closer than they were in previous years, but because there are so many other teams. They're just fighting in a pack of so many that you have to get past you know, if New Jersey wants to make the playoffs, they only have to make up so many points, but they have to leapfrog eight teams. Yeah, it's, it's just insane. It, it's just in, it, that's just too difficult. And so you get New Jersey, Detroit, Buffalo, Carolina, Philadelphia, and Florida who are down underneath five percent. You know, not completely unheard of, but but not really the you know the kinds of stories that that if you were a journalist you would be salivating for. You know, that's the story you'll write about once every once every twenty years or fifty years. But then you have these middle-of-the-pack teams, which are much more fun, especially after last night's results, where they've bunched up nicely. So I, I, you know, I cheer for, for the teams that I like, but mostly I cheer for chaos, and I love it when the teams are all close together. And this year, it looks like the Islanders, the Maple Leafs, the Lightning, and to a lesser extent, Boston, are the ones who are you know, really fighting for spots. Those four teams are fighting for two spots, which really makes for, for fun and big swings in probability. Yeah, and you have, this is going into Wednesday night's games, you have the Islanders at 37% and Toronto at 38 Tampa Bay at 40 So those are like, I mean, 
I know your model is one of a few and you guys uh, collectively vary, you know, there's a percent here that goes there, there's a percent here that goes there. Uh, so really, they're, they're all really tight if there's a 40, 38, 37. Oh, yeah. And there is, you know, as part of like, part of the job is keeping up with, with what other people are doing, with what other techniques are going on. And so you see that somebody else has slightly different probabilities. And so, you know, you don't, if you see somebody who's quoting probabilities that says something like 38.655, you know, you know that that's just silliness, that you can't measure it down to that kind of precision. But I see those three teams down at around 40% and think, you know, that's, that's about right, where you have a three-horse race where, you know, you know, one of them has a game in hand, one of them has an extra point, you know, and they all have slightly different schedules, but you, that jockeying for position is really fun. And, of course, when those teams play one another, that's when you get the, the wildest and most exciting results. And so I think, I think the next one up on that front is Tampa playing Toronto, I think, tomorrow or the day after. Yeah, it's that Thursday. Look, yeah, Thursday. Yeah, tomorrow. That should be great fun. And uh, the Florida Panthers are six points back at the second wild card right now. So it doesn't seem like it's impossible. They have 14 games left. It seems like, okay, if they go on a run, you know, they could easily sneak in. But you have them at 4%. Is that one of those things where uh, the rest and their five-on-five numbers and your sort of all-encompassing equation comes into play? Yeah, in terms of team strength, the, they're not far off. The, you know, they're not like the Kings, who, who my model thinks are quite a bit stronger than their, than their actual results this year. You know, they've, they're, um, Florida's a middle-of-the-pack team, and they're sitting in the middle of the pack right now, maybe just a little bit behind. And although they were hurt badly, uh, you know, you, every team has injuries, but not every team has injuries to the several of their top players for long stretches. Part of the trouble is just that they, they have to get past, they have to leapfrog three teams that are five points, six points, and six points ahead of them. So you need all three of those teams to slip. You know, you pick up, so you pick up six points, that, that bridges the gap. Well, that takes you three games, and you need all three of those teams to take no points or one point in their three games. You know, so that's, now you're writing down four 12 games that you all need to go in a particular direction. And that's, that's like saying, I'm going to flip a coin and I need to get the results I want each time for 12 times in a row. It doesn't come, come good very often. And that's just to get tied with, with eight or nine games to go or 10 games to go. You know, then you still have to do better than those other teams over the rest of those games. So that's, you know, it's not out of the realm of, of possibility, but it's tough now for Florida. Yeah, it's, it's just funny looking at uh, your graphs and seeing New Jersey has 0.0001% chance. And then at the other end of the spectrum, Pittsburgh has roughly 100%. It's, it's one of those, uh, you know, you look at the standings and, and it lines up, uh, you know, your percentages and what, what they actually have in terms of just strictly points. But it's funny to see it, the Devils just being so far behind uh, the Penguins that it's, they're in different, it's like they're in different leagues. Well, the, and, and I, I mean, I'm surprised by New Jersey. I didn't think they'd be good, but I didn't think they'd be this bad this year. And, but those, when you have that many teams bunched up near you, you know, you go on the run. Like if New Jersey goes on a five-game win streak, that's going to give them 10 points. That's going to take them from 62 points to 72 points, and they'll be sitting where Florida is now. So, you know, that they can get past five or 16. That would be a Herculean effort in itself. We'd be, we'd be telling stories about that already. And it's, it's, you know, it's not like last year where we didn't have, 
you know, when we had Buffalo a couple of years back where they were sitting, you know, 20 points off the race, you know, I think those days are, are over except for the West. And if you look at the Eastern Conference in general, so go, going off of your most recent probabilities, Pittsburgh's in, Washington's in, Columbus, New York Rangers, uh, Montreal Canadiens, Ottawa Senators, so all of them are above 95%. Ottawa's actually the lowest at 98 and then Boston's at 81, so you know the the chances that I'm getting in are very high. So that's more or less seven locked up, uh, and then three, like we mentioned, New York New York Islanders, Toronto Maple Leafs, Tampa Bay Lightning fighting for the last spot. Did, if you look, if you think back to the start of the season, are you surprised that it's come down to just three teams for one spot at this point in the season? A little bit. I thought that Montreal and Ottawa would both be a little bit weaker than they are this year. I thought they'd be right in that. In that fight, I thought it would be like like five or six teams fighting for three or four spots. Um, and Columbus is completely out of nowhere for me. I had them pegged at, at the bottom of the league this year. You know, every it's funny. My projections, sort of taken as a set of thirty, are better this year than they have been in any previous year. But there's always one or two teams that are way off, and Columbus is that one for this year. I didn't expect them to be in the playoff picture at all, let alone have a you know an almost totally secure spot there. They're as good as qualified already, so that's that is surprising. I'm I'm pleased in a way at how tight the fight is to have three teams with almost exactly the same probability as well as Boston looking for only two spots. But it's it is a little bit uh, smaller than I expected. Yeah, the Columbus Blue Jackets effect. <laughs> it's screwing up a lot of people's uh, project projections, predictions, predictions. I'm assuming not too many people put money on them to win the Stanley cup in Vegas before the season. I mean, if someone did, they're making, well, they still have to win the cup, but the odds must've been, uh, very much in their favor. No, they'd be astronomical. And this is, this is a great test of, uh, of whether or not the people you're talking to are honest or not. If they say, Oh yeah, I saw that coming. (laughs) Yeah. You know, then you can just tell that they're liars. It's very easy. No, I totally agree. I mean, I remember even talking to someone within the organization, I don't know, a week or two before the season, and they go, you know what, if Brobovsky plays well, uh, and I'm being objective about it, I think we make the playoffs. And that was like the best case scenario. And then you look at them now, and obviously Brobovsky's played well, and the rest of the team has played well. And John Torre, think, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I think if you, you know, if you project reasonable best cases for every single player on a roster, you can get enormous jumps like that. You know, but part of the job is that you don't expect. So for each individual player, you look and you say, well, you know, that's not completely crazy. And there are believers for all those players. You know, you say, how about Borowski? How about Lorensky? How about Brendan Saad? How about Boone Jenner? All these, you know, you, you can have, for each of those players, you'll find somebody who says, you know, yeah, I think they're going to have a great year like they're having. But but the difference is, just like we were saying before, the difference is between saying that, that I think so-and-so is going to have a breakout year between saying, I think they're all going to have breakout years. Yeah, it's that's, that's quite different. Yeah, it's it's kind of mind-boggling uh, when you start breaking it down player by player how how well things have gone in Ohio. And if but oh, if we yeah. if we shift to the to the West, uh, like I alluded to about ten minutes ago, so Colorado is the only team that's officially eliminated. But you run down the list, and there's a bunch of teams that aren't exactly uh, anywhere near competing for a playoff spot. And it's you know you look for example, you look at Winnipeg. So they're ten points back of the last wild card. They have 12 games remaining. You think, okay, it would take a miracle, but, you know, uh, you never know. It might, it might happen. But then, you know, you dig deeper and you look at models like yours and uh, the Hockey News has one and moneypuck.com. There's there's three or four or five of them. 
and they all have Winnipeg really low. I believe you have them at one percent. Yeah, not not even anymore. After their last loss, they're down to point two percent. So they were they were up at one percent just a few days ago. Um, the trouble with Winnipeg is that is the game's out of hand. Yeah, the you know ten points. You make up 10 points in 12 games, that's one thing, but Nashville has an extra game on them, and St. Louis has two extra games on them. To say nothing of Los Angeles, who they'd have to leapfrog, who also has a game in hand on them. Yeah, the, the West is, uh, is I would say, almost locked up, uh, according to your to your model. Almost. The only the only real question is, can can the Kings muscle their way back in or not? And of all teams, I feel like, uh, they may be able to, and I'm assuming your, like you you mentioned before, your model kind of lifts them up or vaults them up, probably higher than most. Oh yeah, the Kings are are extremely good at doing the things that that traditionally have led to winning. So you know everybody who's making mathematical models, we're still using the results of past games, generally lots and lots of past games. The better, the more, the better, as long as you still feel like it's relevant. And the and the Kings sort of almost redefined the way that the game is played, and and they they played so well and won so many games. I, I shouldn't say that just that they played well. They won so many games that any model that looks at the past is going to look at the way that they played and say, "Oh, I think this is a good way to win," because they won so much. So, so the you know if they. Although you get into situations where, you know, if you have a model which which is so easily influenced by something like that, where if they can replicate most of what makes a winning team in that style, but not all of it, then all of a sudden they start to lose games again. And so, but then, you know, all that said, they're still incredibly dominant with the puck. They just have it all the time. And uh, and so it's hard not to, to feel that if anybody could, could overcome long odds like that it would be los angeles as it happens i don't think they're going to do it but but i don't mind when i see for instance i see my model has them at 36 percent to make it into the playoffs and i think a, a different team with a different roster in the same position would have you know maybe half that well but, you know they've been an organization that hasn't exactly uh blown away teams or blown away regular seasons uh they've never really been president trophy contenders they've you know, the one time they won the cup, they're the the eighth seed. I mean, this is just kind of their routine, but obviously they're they're definitely testing fate here, and and the chances of them making it are actually pretty slim. But you have them yeah. at thirty six percent, so you're giving them a fighting chance. Yeah, and and of course the other thing too is that the is that one of the things that that is only now just coming into the state of the art for people who are making models. You know, every year everybody's trying to put on new stuff, trying to make things that are better. But you can't change too much because you don't want to just get caught up in in the the unusual things that happen in one year than that are just flashed in the pan. The the one thing that's that's slow to really get serious adoption is aging curves, and that's one thing that I think is happening to Los Angeles, where they're getting older and you know, and you look at the results that they had and and you see how they were dominant in generating shots. And they've never been great at generating goals per shot. They've always been volume winners, where they don't, you know, they don't have guys who are picking corners on you. They just constantly take the puck from you at the red line and then bring it back in again and again and again. You know, but you still have to score. You can't, you know, you can't win just by winning the blue lines. And uh, and that talent, I think, falls off a little bit more quickly with age. And so those, you'll probably see that change a little bit as, you know, as we get a better theory of aging. 
is another reason on the other end of the curve, just switching back to something we said earlier, yep. part of some other people's models are more optimistic than mine about the Maple Leafs, and part of why is that their their core of players that they ice every night is so young. Right. So it's kind of the reverse Kings effect where uh, you're throwing in the age factor and it's spitting out the, the Leafs as as maybe a uh, team to depend more on and then the Kings as uh, maybe the age is catching up to them. It, it's real tricky. You know, mathematically, you, you want to adjust for, for all these things. But on the other hand, you don't know how much of it is age and you don't know how much of it is taste. You know, how many guys are playing because Daryl Sutter loves to play veterans and how many how many younger players are playing in the Maple Leafs because they don't have any veterans who are good. Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't like all of those extra decisions, you know that that's part of, of how the rosters get chosen, but you don't know how to put that in mathematically. You know, that's, I guess that's why they pay me the big bucks, <laughs> but, uh, but those are problems that are still not solved. And so you, you keep on iterating on that to try to do as, as good as you can. So aging curve, that's one of the things that you might, uh, change about your model for next year? Is there anything else that, you know, you're you're scratching your head and going, hmm, maybe, maybe I should focus on that a little bit more? So coaching is the next one. Aging is the big one. I'm going to do that for sure. And I think I know how to do that. I don't change models in the middle of the year. I think that's bad form. Yeah. But, but, uh, but aging and coaching, those are the two things. And coaching is by far the most difficult. You just have so much less data. There's only a handful of coaches. You know, even, even within... Within a league of 30, you know, we, there's only maybe 40 coaches who've had serious time over the last decade. That's not very many data points. And, you know, hockey culture being what it is, people, people have, you know, standard hockey ideas, and you got to have them or else you don't get hired. So the variation is not as big as you might expect. But on the other hand, you know, you have to – we know it matters, especially for defense. We just don't know how much it matters. We don't have, have quantification on that to feel sure, you know. Like, that, that's always the trick, right? Somebody says, oh, well, you know, you got to have this. And maybe you do, but you don't know how much you need it until after you measure how big it is, not beforehand. Yeah, it's like there's a feeling out process. Yeah, oh yeah, and that's the same thing with, with math as it is with, with putting a new guy on the ice. Face-offs are a great example. Everybody knows that face-offs matter, but we didn't know that they didn't matter that much until after we measured them. You know, yeah. and, and part of the fun there, of course, is that you can get data for face-offs because the league is great about tracking it, but we don't have data for you know, corner battles or data for you know, box outs in front of the net. Which, which I'd love to have, and if I had them, I'd be putting those in models too. Yeah, that'd be that'd be really interesting data. The well, thing, then you know, you'd start to see how you know, how it doesn't matter if you're big. We don't have we don't have data for speed battles. We don't have data for so and so got left behind because he's too slow. You know, although we do know if he loses all his faceoffs. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see it with the eye test, but it's hard to really see it in the data, right? Well, exactly. Um, now this year is obviously a lot different than even last year in terms of. I'm assuming you've noticed that the whole rest component of uh, of your model has has made a huge impact because this year is just weird with the condensed schedule. You know, you had the World Cup and then you had the the bye week that everyone took. It's really, especially down the stretch. I mean, every team is playing like every other day. Yeah, and there are some crazinesses in the schedule this year, um, and the the snowstorms. Two of them now that have oh, delayed right, games yeah. have have caused even more headaches. So Detroit's going to play three games in three nights later on, the, which is, you know, a lot of people think that that's not allowed, and there's language in the CBA that says the league will try to avoid it. Um, and here I don't think there was a way to avoid it, but that's going to be just brutal for for Detroit and also for Carolina, who's playing two of those games. And, you know, the World Cup was 
was unfortunate in terms of compressing the schedule, but the bye weeks have done much, much worse in terms of, of really making crunch happen in the schedule. And, and yeah, I have noticed that the, the rest terms are more important. And so I feel good that I, that I changed my model this, just this past summer to include them. I feel like uh, that would have been a, a real, uh, a terrible mistake to avoid. You saw into the future. <laughs> <laughs> I had his luck for people who make models as well as for hockey players. Yeah, well, good on you for uh, actually looking ahead and going, oh, rust might be uh, pretty pretty important this year. All right, let's let's look at uh, the Eastern and Western Conference and just how the teams slot in because, I mean, it's it's already a topic, but I think it's going to become a bigger topic over the next couple of weeks, the, the silly playoff format, how, you know, you have the Eastern Conference as, as a whole, and then it splits into two when the playoffs start. There's sort of the, the Metro bracket and then the Atlantic bracket. And this isn't new to this year, but this is the first year I feel where it's really impacting the matchups. Like right now, uh, if the season were to end today, going into Wednesday night's action, Washington would play the New York Islanders. That's cool. Uh, Pittsburgh, though, would play the Columbus Blue Jackets, who they, they only have one point uh, difference in the standings, 95 and 94. And they're second and third, respectively, in the Eastern Conference. It's just bananas how good the the Metro has been, and now it's kind of it it's coming up in terms of they're playing each other. Like it, it's almost like you you look at the Metro teams and you're like, how are they not crying foul? But I guess it's just the way the way things go. And in the Atlantic, you've got Montreal is is the real powerhouse if you want to call it there, and Ottawa is right behind them. But then Boston uh, is right there in, in third. And uh, the wild card, New York Rangers, actually has more points than all of them. So it's just this wacky situation. It's very strange, and it's it's created perverse incentives up and down the lineup. So if you're you know if you're the Rangers, your incentive to win games is so small. Why would you win a handful more games to pass Columbus to get the privilege of playing Pittsburgh, who are considerably stronger than you, when you could just sit where you are and play Montreal, who are considerably weaker than you? And correspondingly, if you're Ottawa. You're you're a point behind Montreal with a game, two games in hand. So you know, do you put your very best players on the line now and try to win the, try to win your division? I mean, after all, that was why we had the system to begin with. We wanted to encourage divisional rivalry. Yeah. Ottawa's going to play Montreal again. You know, do you do you make sure that you win that game? Do you do everything you possibly can when your reward is to move away from playing Boston at home? who are, at this point, maybe five or six points weaker than you, if you think the standings are a good measure of strength, or do you really go all out just for the privilege of playing the Rangers who are five or six points stronger than you? Now, that's, you know, if we're trying to encourage divisional divisional rivalry, I don't think we did it. Yeah, I don't. I, it's, it's more of an issue in the East. The West, it's, like, justifiable. I mean, there's a couple of weird matchups right now, but it's not so bad. Um like Chicago is playing St. Louis, and Chicago was the best team. St. Louis was the lot, the worst team as as the worst wild card, and then the 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 second or sorry the the top wild card, Edmonton is playing San Jose. So that's like, it, it's it's more like uh, apples and oranges in in the West. It's not such a big deal, um, but then you get away from the playoff teams, and um, this is my transition to your sadness rankings and. Oh, I, I like your, your, your coined term sadness rankings. Um, when you get away from the playoff teams, you have 14 teams left and only five of them are going in the draft lottery. So in between the 16 and the five is this group of teams 
that are at the end of the season, they've pretty much got nothing to show for their uh, their incompetence or or just just losing so much or just becoming coming so close to the playoffs. And really, the you you captured it by calling the the sadness rankings. Well, it's it's funny. It was it was suggested by. I invented it last year, or I started graphing it. I didn't invent it. A friend of mine named Luke Peristi invented oh, okay. it. Oh, just, okay. He just suggested it to me. He said, you know, you've got all this data. Why don't you just do it? And uh, why don't you just track it? And so I did. And the re- part of why he mentioned it is because he's a Senators fan. And, uh, and at the time, it looked like the Senators were going to hit that, you know, that number nine spot where you don't make the playoffs and you don't get a very good draft pick. You know, unless you ex- you're extremely unlikely to get into one of the three lotteries to, to get a really good pick. And and part of the fun there, of course, was that is that this is a couple of years back. Is that we had well, last year, you know, even last year we had Buffalo being considerably weak, and and the memories of of the tank races, as they were called, were were very vivid in everybody's mind. And and so I wanted to put a handle on this idea that that there are a pile of teams every year who don't make the playoffs and who get very weak draft picks, and calling it sadness was was you know was inspired by Luke it was entirely his idea but it but it does seem to fit where it, it's not so bad in a way like if you come ninth if you're if you're part of a thrilling playoff race and you fall just short then that's that's not so bad even if the draft pick is bad you can say to your fans look you know what do you want us to not make the playoffs yeah like you know we gave you a bunch of exciting games we were right in the thick of it we almost made it there's something you can sell to your fans there and and everybody likes a bit of adversity that way but then there's enough teams that there's there's a, a sort of mushier middle just beneath that where you're like ninth or tenth or eleventh or twelfth. You know, you're still you're not weak enough to really think, okay, well, you know, we're going to start hyping up Nico Hishi or we're going to start hyping up somebody else, Nolan Patrick, in the draft and say, well, you know, look, we're going to have a real good crack at one of these guys and he's going to be exciting and maybe we sell off some parts of the deadline, you know, because we can see ahead of time that it's going to be like that. Instead, you have these things that don't see that they're they're not sure that they're going to that they're going to fall out of the playoffs. You know, you have teams which are maybe four points out at the deadline or something, and it's it's a bit of a rough optics to say, oh well, you know, we're just going to sell now. But then there's four teams that you have to pass as you make up those four points, and so you might stare at a chart and say, you know, and you might trust the model as much as you like and say, well, look, our chances of making the playoffs are only four percent. You know, we ought to do this, but we can't. You know, we can't sell that. We can't market that. And so there's a there's a marketing problem there, and it, and every time there are problems like that, I feel like there's there's a way that you can connect with fans. You can at least, you know, if you can't educate people or if you can't be happy about their uh, about their great successes, you can always commiserate with them in their sadness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And of course, as soon as I'm so good. Well, I was just gonna say exactly. I mean, calling it sadness, it's kind of like misery wants company, sort of thing. Well, the thing about hockey, you know, like. When you're watching a game and your team scores, you cheer and you're happy. But but if you're looking at seasons or you're looking at sequences of seasons, the experience of being a hockey fan is mostly losing all the time. You know, even like even if your team is some great dynasty and you win three Stanley Cups in five years, an incredible run, you're still going to probably have several years of losing before that and several years of losing after it. But But hockey fandom is something that most people do for their whole lifetime once they're hooked. And so you're going to spend most of your life watching your team lose most of the time. So if you can't find some sort of slightly perverse pleasure in, in enjoying your team when you're down, you know, it's it's a real unrewarding way to be. And so I try to put, uh, you know, if it's an angle, I don't know if you call it that, but I try to find some 
some way to appreciate the bad times as well as it's easy to appreciate the good times. Yeah, no kidding. And I think you're doing a good job of it. I'm glad you brought up the whole hope thing because I remember talking to a junior hockey coach and, and he was also a manager. And this sort of relates to the NHL to a less extent, but I guess to, to smaller markets where in terms of marketing the team, if you're not winning, you better be selling hope because otherwise you're going to have a fan base that just doesn't care that tunes you out. If it's in Toronto uh, or if it's, I don't know, Montreal, Ottawa, it's pretty hard to have your fan base tune you out. It might happen if you are so terrible for a long time, but if you have one season where things don't go well, they go, okay, whatever, it's all good. But, you know, you you have the Florida Panthers at an 86% sadness. Uh, that's that's tough. That's tough to sell, uh, you know, coming back to the arena, renewing your season tickets if, uh, if you're not selling, like, hope, like, oh, we're going to get a great pick or we're going to make the playoffs. And they might make the playoffs, but they have a very small chance of that. Yeah, it's... I mean, there's a real difficulty there, and that's part of why marketers actually do get paid bigger bucks than I do, <laughs> is because they're they're solving hard problems like that of of trying to keep people excited. All right, I'm going down the uh, the Mica. I don't know uh, the the wheel of fun with Mica, and we've done <laughs> we've done the uh, the model for for playoff probability. We've talked about your sadness rankings. Both of those are on HockeyViz.com, and also I know that you've done some work on secondary assists. So obviously not first assists and not primary points you're talking about the you could call them like garbage goal or not garbage goals garbage assists uh noise um you, you've kind of you've used it as as a topic of discussion and as something that that kind of grinds your gears i guess that that people care so much about secondary assists or that they're they're a thing in general so i i do think that they're that they're a little bit unfortunate the, I, I can understand part of why part of why they come around. You know, people want to say, you know, the instinct of saying, you know, it's not just the guys who score goals. We want to look at who's actually creating stuff. That instinct, I think, is excellent. And and on the other hand, too, you got to, if you're going to write down a formula, if you're going to come up with a way of measuring something, you got to nail it down and make sure that it's done the same way every time, as best as you can, you know, or else you're just going to get completely subjective garbage, no matter what it is you're trying to measure. But the secondary, the way that we measure points right now with primaries and secondary assists is not doing as good a job at what we want to do. And there's there's a tension here because if you watch, you know, you watch Eric Carlson as I do every night, if you watch him make an incredible pass, which completely exposes the defense and turns into an easy two-on-one and somebody taps it across and then somebody has an easy goal, then Carlson's going to get a secondary assist. And and his play is by far the most difficult play in, in, the, in the reel. You're going to see that on the highlight reel and say, well, you know, Secondary assists are clearly valuable. Look, we just watched him pull off a great one. And there are beautiful, beautiful secondary assists, you know, almost every night. But the trouble, the tension comes in when you compare that with the fact that there's also an enormous pile of secondary assists that are given out for almost nothing at all, where where a guy will take a shot and the goalie will hit it, but there's no change in possession, or you'll hit the post, say, and then he'll change, but his team gets the puck back and somebody carries it around for 30 seconds and then finally makes a pass and scores. And he has almost nothing to do with the goal. He wasn't even part of the puck recovery, where you, you get situations like that too. And so if you want to look at statistical validity, if you want to know if the thing that you're measuring is is really useful for measuring ability to create offense, you know, then you start looking at statistical tools. That's what they were. That's what we invented them for, to try to tease apart when we have lots of data to try to tease apart the information from the noise, and and you discover that the secondary assists aren't doing what they're supposed to do. 
is very sad in a way that but but if you if you think of it mathematically then you say well you know we tried too bad so sad we'll try again but of course now that they're part of the of the established way that people evaluate you know there's there's friction when you try to when you try to do that so i i like to use a bit of humor if i can so i publish charts which list them instead of saying goals primary assists and secondary assists i just call them goals primary assists and noise that way people <laughs> like to ask me what they are and i can start conversations and slowly try to convert them to my cult-like ways but it, it <laughs> the, uh, the secondary the anti-secondary assist cult it's and, and, you know, and I do get people who, there's plenty of people who disagree, especially people whose favorite players are defenders. And I do get a, you know, every time there's a beautiful secondary assist, somebody loves to 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 mention me with a, with a screenshot on Twitter, which is nice, actually. That means I get to see a lot of really nice passing plays every morning. <laughs> but, the, you know, the, part of the trouble is that is that that movement from I want to know who did well in this play to I want to know who's doing well for a whole season the, those two things don't often connect the way that you want them to. You, you know, intuitively you want them to, but they don't. This is part of the trouble about doing, you know, science, for lack of a better word, social science, hockey science. It sounds a bit grandiose, but that's what it is. And the and so when you want to start asking those questions, you need to sharpen up your toolbox. Well, and it almost seems ambiguous. Like, why why is it two assists? Why not three or four? I don't know if there's other sports that do more than one. I don't know. I'm trying to think. When you were talking, I'm like, okay, basketball just does one assist. I'm not 100% sure on soccer, but I'm pretty sure it just does one assist. You know what I mean? Why is hockey obsessed with the second assist? So what history is the reason. In soccer, of course, score assists are are only only variously kept. You know, they're not, as as, as stats go, they're not nearly quoted. Even single assists, not even quoted as nearly as often as, as assists are in hockey. Right. Um, and part of the trouble, too, is that you know, I, I was mentioning earlier about how you, know, you have to have a formula, which can get you into trouble, right? Where you can, you know, anytime you say, well, this is the new formula, then people will exploit it in ways that you didn't expect. Um, but there's a handful of, of curiosities to the formula that that make less and less sense when you look at them. Like, for instance, you can't get a secondary assist on your own goal. So you can make a beautiful pass, gorgeous as you please, completely, completely undress the defense, but if the guy you pass it to passes it back to you and you score, you just get the goal and you don't get an assist. So if so if it if the point is to reward people who make creative plays, then it doesn't quite make sense. Imagine on the other hand, you know, you start. Sorry, I'm, not, I'm just I in my head. I'm thinking like, imagine Connor McDavid all the secondary assists he would get if he was doing give and goes with I don't know Patrick Maroon or someone. Sure, and and in some sense, you know, if if you really like secondary assists, if you are completely sure. That they're that they're doing what they're supposed to, then you should probably hand out those extra secondary assists. Those are probably that would probably improve the stat as a stat. But we don't do that, and and no one is contemplating changing it. And the other thing too, of course, is that even though we want to have a uniform definition, the some people who have done some research here have discovered that the definition is not completely uniform in terms of how it's actually handed out. Some people have found that home teams that home scorers give their home teams longer. Assist chains that secondary assists are a little bit more likely than you'd think. This is the kind of thing that you'd never, you know, you'd never figure out by by teasing apart individual plays. But then you look at a bunch of aggregates over a number of years and you say, ah, hey, it's a bit fishy, actually. You know, home team scorers don't work for the home teams, uh, but they do operate out of their home ranks, and so they get into habits and you watch teams differently. And then, of course, sometimes it's just not completely clear. You see a big scramble and some guy hits a puck. Was it him or was it him? You know, oh, I'm not sure. 
you know, and then you get all sorts of mess that way, and you're not completely sure who touches the puck. And if the other team gets the puck, then of course there's no more assist chain at all, and so you can't be completely sure if another team, you know, like the refs have this problem every time there's a delayed penalty. You know, did he actually have the puck, or did it just deflect off of his stick? You know, some refs call it one way, and some refs call it the other way, and we sort of accept as fans that it doesn't really matter, even if we yell at the TV when we don't like it. You know, and that's that's bad enough for when you're watching just an individual game, but then those kinds of things, you know, do they all wash out or do they add up? And and it's more and more of a mess statistically when you get into it. Oh, yeah. And obviously a huge counter argument is that, okay, let, let's strip away, you know, secondary assists. But what about the, the historical context of this whole thing? And there's a lot of guys that have dined out on a lot of secondary assists. Do we exclude that now when we talk about, you know, the past and comparing errors? It kind of confuses things. People don't like change, especially – when it comes to something like a, a statistic, it's like, oh, but but it's been this way for so long. So why are we doing? You know what I mean? It, it, I oh, feel yeah. like I feel like most of the counter argument would be, it's fine the way it is. Like you know what I mean? It's not. It's like ah, uh, whatever. Yeah, and and for people, I like I actually don't mind this quite quite that much. You know, people who whose primary interest is historical, the you know I don't have any trouble with those people. You know, because we don't have. We don't have the same interests, so we don't really have much to talk about. I almost want to say, look, you just keep on measuring it however you want for however you're doing. But I'm I'm more interested in in what's going to happen in the future. And you know, we were talking at the beginning of the show about prediction. That's that's really my stock and trade. And so I'm I'm much more interested in predicting future totals, and and seeing you know, it's like I'm trying to make decisions. If I'm if I'm putting myself in a, a manager's shoes or even a fan's shoes, I want to you know, do I want to complain about so and so being on the top line? Well, if I know that a huge number of his point totals are secondary assists, then I know that they're, they're not as likely to hold up. That people who generate offense from goals, and for, especially from goals, but also from goals and primary assists, you know, that's much more likely to, to persist into the future. And, and so if you're comparing to the past, I have a lot of sympathy. But if you want to predict the future, then I think, I think you've got to go with what's best. I agree. All right, Micah, I appreciate your time. And uh, I mean, I've, I've pimped hockeyviz.com a few times, but maybe you can uh, let everyone know where, where they can find you on Twitter. So so hockeyviz.com is the website. The, that's where you can find the stuff that I make. Although if you want to find me and some of the more newer stuff that's not up on the website yet, uh, I'm on Twitter at, at ineffectivemath. Not effective math, ineffective math. It's a joke on how I have a math <laughs> education, but I couldn't get a math degree. I couldn't get a math job, sorry, and I had to go into hockey, which is more fun anyhow. But, uh, but once, well, you know, you have jokes, and once you... Uh, my mom thinks I should change it. She thinks it's not very serious. <laughs> but, uh, but once you've got them, then, uh, then you stick with them. And so ineffective math is where you find me on Twitter, and that's where most of the fun happens. Perfect. All right, thanks, Mike. I appreciate your time. Thank, thank you. Thank you.